0: For many of us, when I say the word Pandora, we think of a streaming service. And rightly so, because it is a music streaming service. But if we reach back in time, we go, wait, what what did we think of Pandora, you know, before the streaming service came online? Of course, we would go to the person in Greek mythology. And I think most of us are a little bit familiar with Pandora's story. If not her, then certainly with her box, right? Pandora's box. I want to reach back to that story briefly. The Cliff Note version goes like this, uh, that Pandora was the first woman given to humanity. Uh, Zeus, you know, the the chief god uh, created Pandora and gave her to humanity. Now, what you got to keep in mind in this story is that Zeus gave mankind Pandora as a punishment. Then the story goes back a little further because what had happened is one of the lesser gods had, had given fire to man, made Zeus mad. Zeus got so mad, he said, I'm gonna, give, I'm gonna punish humanity. And so he gave humanity Pandora. Now, Pandora was irresistibly beautiful and she was given this wiring by Zeus, this will make sense in a moment, in that she was insatiably curious. So here's Pandora given to humanity, unable to, to, to bridle her curiosity because when, when she was given, Zeus also gave her a gift and it was a box. And you know the story, she was not allowed to open it. Don't open the box. Of course, she couldn't resist. She opened the box and out came every evil and misery and pain and death and loss and disappointment in this world. Obviously shocked, she sought to shut the box and she did. She shut it as quickly as she could. And when she did, only one thing remained in the box that didn't get out. Now, who knows what remained in the box? Someone yell it out. Someone yell it out. Hope, yeah, all of y'all are going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, Greek mythology. What was Greek mythology? No, you know. Uh, Hope, y'all, it's like she shut it to to not let anything else out, but when she did, only hope remained closed in the box. Now connect that to the story. Zeus was punishing humanity. And so now humanity would live with all the misery of evil, and death and loss without hope. That's punishment. Fast forward 2700 years from that Greek poem. You know what we're finding today, and and I'm not gonna cite a bunch of statistics because you guys can Google and look this stuff up. I'm just gonna tell you what I think many of you know. Research and studies today confirm that hope is real and it has real effects on the human body, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And that to live without hope is to to not really live. and, And the presence of hope when we're in difficult circumstances, whether it be medically, emotionally, that, that it, they, they can show your body responds differently when you have hope. When we open up our Bibles, like Pandora's box, something flies out of the book. And I wanna suggest it's hope. From Genesis to Revelation, hope comes from this word. And we're gonna, look at, we're gonna look at a song, and we've looked at it on the screen, that helps us understand hope and what it is and how we live with it. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open there to Psalm 46. Go to Psalm 46, it's 11 verses. We're gonna walk through here in a moment. Uh, regarding hope, there is no one in the room, I, I, am not, I don't, I don't even really have to make this assumption, it's a fact There's no one in this room that isn't facing something in life right now that requires hope. And there's no one in the room really that is not in some way struggling with hope in the face of those circumstances. Uh, uh, My friend David Arms and I were talking many years ago and we're talking about the nature of hope and many of, if not all of his paintings are tied to hope and, and we were trying to visualize it. What does it look like? What does it mean? How, how would you really say it? How would you define it? Et cetera, et cetera. And I remember we were having coffee and I made the comment. I said, man, I've just thought a lot about that. And I know this is almost silly, but I just want someone to tell me it's gonna be okay. And that's just the bottom line language to me of hope. It's gonna be okay. And, and, and if you think about it, really think about it. If, if it's, whether it's a kid who, who's hurt or, or an adult who's living with the weight of the world upon them, isn't, don't, don't we long for someone to say, it's going to be okay. Now, the more we thought about it, because we're kind of going, yeah, I just want to know it's going to be okay. We thought, well, um, you know, you gotta have someone, Someone, whoever says it's gonna be okay has to deliver on it's gonna be okay. And when you really think about it, for any person to say to another person, based upon me, hey, uh, you know, it's gonna be okay, mommy's gonna take care of it, you know, or something. Well, uh, you don't know, you know, you can't make it okay, ultimately. And so, David and I thought, you know, this again makes sense, when it comes down to it, Ultimately, only God could say it's going to be okay because only God can deliver on that promise. Psalm 46 is one passage, because it's everywhere, in which we see how God delivers on that promise. It's made up of three stanzas, kind of like a beautifully written song, Each stanza ends with the word selah, which Mike Vogt mentioned last week. Selah is best we can tell, because we we can't be dogmatic. It, it, It seems to be a musical interlude. It seems to be a pause. It seems to be a rest. And it's appropriate for us to say, when you see that word selah, which often shows up in the Psalms, it's really a stop and think about this. It's a pause. Each stanza has a heading I'm gonna give you as we go through it but all the headings fit under one giant heading, okay? With that, looking at Psalm 46, let's look at the the umbrella statement under which these three stanzas fit is verse one. Follow along in your Bibles. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Everything else this song says fits under that heading. It's present tense. We'll start there, which means there never was a time, there never will be a time in the future, and there's not a time right now when this is not true. This is a fact. God is our refuge and our strength. A refuge is what you imagine. It is a place of safety. It's a protection. It's a roof over your head. We were, uh, My son and I were out playing golf last weekend, and and uh, thunderstorms rolled in. Well, on this golf course, they happen to have these little sheds, right? And, and, and what are they? They're refuges. It's where you go to get under and the storm strikes, which by the way, uh, this group that I was playing with, we're playing and it's lightning and, and it's like, we didn't go to the refuge. We just kept waving around these steel shaft things, you know, up in the air. Um, Gid, as he, he, he's in the room and didn't send me to safety, but we, we played our golf. But it's, it's a refuge. It's, it is a place. Um, it's a place of safety. Now I want you to catch this. It's not that God makes a safe place. God. God is the refuge. To be our strength. It means his power. It is a description of his power to deliver on his promise. We're going to see later in the song, there's no greater power than God and nothing can resist his power. Now it, it says here in our thematic statement, he is a very present help in trouble. Now I've always pictured that and it's not inappropriate to see it this way. In other words, he's a very present, he's, he's near, he's there. I mean, the whole Psalm's going to say this. Um, But I think in this phrase, he's saying something different than he's nearby, he's available. And he is, he always is. But it seems, I think, this particular statement is a bit different. It can be rendered in this way in the Hebrew He is a help frequently tried and proved. He is a help frequently tried and proved. Uh, In other words, it's not just that God's available, near, it's that when we go to God as our refuge and strength, we're going to a God who has been tried and proven trustworthy. That's the thought in this particular line. And for the original audience, all they had to do was reach back, right, in their own history and go, he brought us out of bondage he parted the Red Sea. He put down the walls. You know, they could just go through their history. He is God. Has done these things in our lives. He is tested and trustworthy. Now I'm going to pause here on the text itself, a little bit of an aside, but I think it's very important for us. And I and I thought about this, even given it the time, but I want to because of my own conversations with many of you and my own conversations with myself. Some of us hear the words, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. And the thought crosses our minds like this. I think he is for everyone else but me. Or yes, I'll say God is that, but he hasn't been for me or this blank wouldn't have happened oh it's so easy to go there what do we do with the experiences of life things happen in life gang that seemingly contradict this very verse when they do and I want to offer what I think is a biblical response I'm not smart enough to have anything else it often feels like there's two options when, life, when, when our life experience seems to contradict God's promise and word. It, always, it, it can seem like there's two options. The first option is this. Um, it's to choose to believe, you know, what God says is true and this must not be. And so we diminish our reality. We deny it. We may even bury it. We may even edit it so that we can hold on to God's, my refuge and strength, even though, right? Or the other option would be to say, I can't deny what happened. And so we submit God's promise under our experience and we just can't unravel it. I wanna say there's, there's really a third option And I I think this would be the biblical option. I'll tell you why in a moment. And that is to believe that God's promise is true. And our experience in life that is bad, horrible, painful and hurtful is true. And biblical faith holds the two in tension. You do not separate one, you do not separate the other. That biblical faith is to hold those two things in tension. You think, well, Lloyd, explain that further. Let me try and simplify It's to say this. Biblical faith is to recognize and believe that God is good and bad things happen. It's not either, God is good and, and, and hard things happen. Now, the reason I'm offering this to us as our biblical ground is you would be hard-pressed. In fact, I would say it's going to be impossible for you to find a person in the Bible who did not experience God's goodness and the fallenness of the world in great pain. To try and find a person who did not experience both, In faith, you you really won't find in the Bible. And ultimately, I'm gonna go to this. Is there any human being who has ever experienced and expressed the truthfulness of God's word and the cruelty in his life in this world than Jesus? Jesus didn't have just this or just this. No, Jesus had both. Now, because Jesus rose from the grave, what is wrong and evil and painful in this life, we know this. While it has a say, and it does, in this life that we live right now, it does not get the final word. Life gets the final word in Christ. Y'all, this is all woven into hope. Speaking about hope, one more bit of an aside, the nature of hope. I just wanna get it in your mind and let us understand that our hope is only as good as what we're hoping in. Whatever we, we put our trust in, you see, our trust could be wimpy, but if our trust is in that which isn't, it's, it's all about the object of our hope. Think about, think about medicine Is it appropriate, you all, to have hope that this medicine's gonna make us well? I think that's absolutely appropriate, but we know the limitations. It may not. It may not come through in the end. Is it appropriate to have hope that that person's gonna do what they said? Well, I think it is appropriate, but we know this. They're not infallible. We don't know for sure if they come through. Is it appropriate for you and I to have hope in our government, in our politicians, in, in, in the structure of our life in this world. Yeah, this, there's reason to have hope, but do we, do we think that it'll always deliver and never fail? No. So where, where can we put our hope? We're in the words of Paul. It's a hope that doesn't disappoint. Psalm 46 says, only in God only in God, only in God. Now I want you to notice how he says it. Here's the first piece of evidence. I'll give you a heading when I, after we read it. Look at the first stanza, verses two and three. I'll grab verse one just for the, the whole stanza. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. I mean, his, his first piece of evidence of the trustworthiness of God is a bit mind-boggling. If I put a heading on this little stanza, I would put it like this. God is our refuge and strength, and then here's the phrase, when the world is falling apart. God is our refuge and strength when the world is falling apart. And I want you to know when you read this passage and we see the mountains, oh my word, are falling into the sea. The sea is making the mountains tremble. I mean, it's nothing less than a description of the world, the physical world falling apart. For the, for, the, for the Hebrew, for the original audience, we're gonna try and keep ourselves there. When they looked around their world, there was nothing more noble, stable, immovable than the mountains. And honestly, we still feel that today, don't we? If you go to the Smokies, go to the Rockies, or go to, you know, when you see those things and stand near them, don't you have this sense of, oh, that's that's immovable, massive. That, that's the sense they had. That's what they would look to. And then when they looked to the sea, let me tell you what they saw. The exact opposite. For in the sea, symbolically all through the scripture, the sea is that place of chaos and unrest and trouble and deep and mystery. And what he describes is this. The sea is swallowing the mountains. What? What? Let me be more specific. He's describing the reversal of creation. See, in creation, the chaos, God gives order, the mountains rise, the land. He's describing the reversal of creation. You you talk about the world falling apart physically. It could not fall apart any more than this. And it's in this, in other words, he's saying, if creation reversed itself, I want you to know God is our refuge and strength of very present help in trouble. In what kind of trouble? In the worst trouble imaginable. Take that at the extreme as true. And you begin to go, and I'm not making light of any of our troubles because our troubles are real too. But if God remains immovable in that, can I say he remains immovable and faithful in whatever trouble is moving in your world and mine? Go on to the second stanza. Continues to sing, verse four. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Now, think about, think about the contrast. The mountains are moving, the sea is swelling up, the whole thing's falling apart. And then you come to these phrases. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her When morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. And then this phrase we find in verse seven and repeated in verse 11, the Lord of hosts, this is the Lord of the Lord's armies, the Lord of angelic myriads. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our Fortress. the heading I might put on this particular stanza would be this, God is our refuge and strength. And then I would add this phrase, because he is with us. Because he is with us. Again, putting ourselves in the ancient context, you all. Uh, this is a people who, lived by water. <laughs> this is desert, arid, dry. That water was everything. And it's interesting that he goes from this tumultuous water, right? This bad water, can we say that? To suddenly it's like, whoop, total switch over. And it's like, there's a stream. There's this life giving stream that flows out. You know, this is the, the, the shift in the tone of the song. If you think about commercials for 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 soft drinks or beer, alcohol, whatever, it, it, but you know we we're, we're inundated with those images of people thirsty, sweating, athletes just dying, and then it's a like, you know, and then they drink that you know, and it's almost like you go, oh, Coke commercial. When a Hebrew read these words and suddenly went from the tumultuous sea to a stream. Of water, a river flowing. I'm telling you, their soul just went, oh. they they felt the power of the metaphor of a river. For, for for the Hebrew, you see, running water, water that flowed, okay, versus in the well or in a pot, where all that flowed was literally called living water. It was living water. So they go from that chaotic scene in stanza one to this living water that flows from Jerusalem. The city of God is literally the city of Jerusalem. It is the place where God chose to put his name. It is the place of the temple. It is the place where heaven and earth meet and God meets with his people. God is with her, the city personified. What's striking geographically, and many you know this, that the city of Jerusalem sits on a rock There's no river in Jerusalem, people. There's a tiny stream, stream of Siloam. That's an interesting story, how they got water into the city from there. But but there's no river. And so when we read this, we've got to say, wait, there's no river in Jerusalem. What is this, this ever-flowing stream of life making the city glad? What is that? Well, we let the Bible interpret the Bible and you don't need to turn there, but just listen to these words that help us. Jeremiah 2, 13, God speaks and says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. Now here's how he describes himself. The fountain of living waters. Jesus would say in John 7, 37 and 38, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone's thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water in the garden, rivers in the wilderness, strike the rock, water pours out. Rivers in the person of Jesus Christ and rivers in the heavenly Jerusalem. What is this river flowing out of the city? You all, it is nothing other than God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, life-giving, the only life-giving force in the universe, the one who gives true life, flowing, ever-flowing, living water. Why? Because God is present there. There doesn't have to be a river that's flowing with snowmelt. God himself is the water of life. God's Presence is the presence of hope. That's why the city doesn't move when the whole world's falling apart because God is with her. He says it twice. And when I say God is with her, God is present, let me distinguish something here. I'm not speaking of God's omnipresence, omni, all present, that God is as an attribute. Do you understand God's omnipresence? This will blow your mind when you really try and touch on it. But God's omnipresence means God is fully present everywhere all the time. That's omnipresence. Not that God, you know, parts of God, his arms over here and his left arms over here and his legs wrapping around the earth. Omnipresence is God is present everywhere, all the time. That's his presence. So you go, well, God's always present. Well, no, notice what the presence he's talking about here. It's relationally present. Well, how how do we know that? Well, because we know that's where they met with God in the temple. We also know it from the text itself. It says, the Lord of hosts is with us. That's the the, the Lord of the Lord's armies is with us. And then he says this, the God of Jacob. Oh, he's the God through whom we have through, through Jacob, we have relationship with this God. We're in covenant relationship with this God. You all, that's the presence of God that does not move. When we're in relational, covenant relationship with that God. There, God is present. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Verse three or third stanza, let's hit it quickly. Verses eight to eleven continues to sing and the invite there's an invitation come behold the works of the lord how he has brought desolations on the earth you know when you read that i don't know about you but i remember reading it early in the week and i went come behold the works of the lord and i kind of kind of wanted to go look how he created the heavens look how he and it's all come behold the works of the lord he's brought desolation and you wonder why is he talking about desolation well i'll tell you in a moment he makes wars to cease To the end of the earth, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Here's that phrase. By the way, this is the only time God speaks in the song. God steps in. This is God's voice now. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our Fortress. Why is he talking about desolation? Well, we've got to put ourselves again in the original audience and, and what they were experiencing and why these words would be so meaningful. You know, today, Iran's enriching uranium. Um, North Korea has a nuclear bomb. Russia, China, of course. Everyone's rattling sabers. Uh, you, you just feel like these nations, you know, at any moment, something's gonna light up and, and um, things are gonna get very bad. But may I say, I think this is appropriate to say, that all of us in the room who are here in the United States, we, even with all that going on, I don't think we live with the fear of we could be taken over tomorrow. So they are, somebody's gonna invade the United States and, and take over the whole country and we're gonna be in bondage. We don't, we don't live with that even amidst all this. Let's put ourselves in their shoes. In this day, Okay. It was a daily threat that at any moment, somebody next door could decide they want you, and they just you know read your, and, and they could come and take your land if they were stronger and killed, killed enough of you and they'd take over. That was a visceral, real fear experience. And as an aside, is it not interesting that even today? 2,700 years later, I'm telling you, Israel, if you're there, lives with that fear, a visceral fear that it could happen today. What? That those who wanna destroy them would destroy them. Well, that's what they're feeling here. So when God says, come behold the works of the Lord, this is awesome to them. This is awesome. Look at the works of the Lord. He makes wars to cease. He gets rid of all your enemies. And he destroys the weapons of war. They're not gonna harm you ever again. You know, again, that's where I go, oh, this was like, yes, you know, for, for them. And for us, does it bring that same sense? Do we recognize God defeats our enemies? He breaks the weapons of war. He says this, and this is God himself speaking, be still and know that I am God, I will be exalted among the nations. Well, this is all the chaos around them nationally, kings and rulers that constantly wanna destroy them. I will be exalted in the earth. Oh, that's the earth that he talked about in the first stanza that could fall away tomorrow, the physical realm, and God would still be God. You know, the meaning be still is, is better captured and you were teaching now the ESV, it's, it's better captured in the NASB in this particular case where it says, cease striving. That's a, that's a better, gets more at what he's trying to say here where it says, because be still can be like, be still or be quiet. It's not so much that as it is cease striving. Why do I say that? Always stay in the context. What's the context that God speaks these words well, the context is the wars he makes cease, when he's breaking bows and shattering spears and burning chariots. Cease striving. The idea is drop your weapons. Uh, drop the tools you are using. Uh, drop the work you're about. Drop the work you're doing to secure your hope. Stop it. <laughs> you know? Drop those things that you're trying to take hold of to secure your future. Be still, cease striving. And know that I am God. Here's a question we don't always ask. I don't, of this particular statement because we take it for granted. But I don't know that we can. Let me ask you this. Who is he talking to? Have you thought about that when you look at the text? Is he talking to these nations that threaten the people that are fighting whose, whose weapons he's about to break? Or is he talking to his people? He's talking to both. In the context, he certainly, he's, I mean, this is, this is to the enemies of God cease striving, and I'm going to show you I'm God, and he will. And he's speaking to his own people. Cease striving and know that I am God. I I will be exalted among nations and on this earth. Now with that, uh, I cannot be dogmatic. We cannot be dogmatic. Um, But we think that one event that may have precipitated this particular psalm shed some light on it. And that would be an event that happens in Second Kings 18 and 19, when the Assyrian king Sennacherib comes against Jerusalem. So here's the probably most powerful leader in the in that area at the time. He's, he's come to Jerusalem, and on the way he's captured cities. So he's just making his capture this and capture this one, capture, till he finally gets to Jerusalem. He gets right here to Jerusalem, okay, and he's ready to lay siege to Jerusalem, which means they'd starve him out which happened in Jerusalem at different times. Um, Hezekiah is the king of Jerusalem at this time. And I want you to, you know you can read the story in 2 Kings 18 and 19, but I want you to listen to these words from the representatives of Sennacherib as they stand on the, on the, you know, on the outskirts of Jerusalem and they yell to the people on the walls and listen to what they said to them. Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Then Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord By saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Listen, Jerusalem was surrounded by more troops than you could have fit in Jerusalem, they didn't stand a chance. Hezekiah prayed. 2 Kings 19, we read after his prayer. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, behold, these were all dead bodies. And we think Psalm 46 was written in response to that. And I want you to think about that phrase now. Be still, cease striving, and know that I'm God. Put it down, stop, I will deliver you. And, and think about the people in Jerusalem in that moment with Sennacherib's troop, you know, just throwing God under the bus, throwing Hezekiah under the bus. They went to bed that night, you all. Think about it. They went to bed that night, if they did, probably a sleepless night. We're gonna die. <laughs> I mean, they're coming in tomorrow. And it says they get up the next morning and 185,000 Assyrians are dead. Now think, here's, here's the, what, what gets me is, God delivered them while they were sleeping. They didn't go kill 185,000. This is God's mighty hand on behalf of his people. God was their refuge, and their strength is he ours uh, I'm, I've gone over time wise but I want to end uh, with, with this for it's probably on some of your minds those familiar with Psalm 46 you, if you don't know this this is the Psalm from which Luther penned the most famous hymn of his we know a mighty fortress is our God it is well-documented that when discouraged and down as he was many times struggling with depression, uh, he would comment to melanchthon his, his comrade in arms in the Reformation. Literally, he would say, come let us sing Psalm 46. Won't, I won't read the whole thing to you, but enough that it'll be on your mind. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing our shelter, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus, ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth. By the way, Sabaoth is a translation of, of hosts. Lord of hosts is what that means. Lord of hosts is his name from age to age the same and he must win the battle. Indeed, he has won the battle. And in Christ Because God is with us in Christ, so do we. In the end, it's gonna be okay. God said so. God bless. You are dismissed.